It's good to be here with all of you at, at Southwinds. For those of you that uh, don't know me, my name's Jeff Mann, and uh, I have a little bit of a history with Southwinds. Uh, in fact, my, my wife, Christy, was born and raised at this church, so it has a special place in our heart. Uh, my my uh, in-laws, Brent and Linda Ives, are still here and very active in the life of the church, as well as some of the other family members that, that live in town here. And uh, I, I became a, a member of Southwinds when we started attending in 2005. I took a sales job uh, in Northern California that allowed us to relocate to Tracy for, uh, for Christy to be around her family and, and raise our kids together and stuff. And so um, our oldest son, Logan, was already born at that time, but our other three children, Lauren, Luke, and Landon, were all born here in Tracy. I've got a picture of the family so you guys can to see how cute my family is. And I know you think I'm probably not old enough to have you know, a child in a wheelchair, but that's actually, my, that's, that's actually my grandmother, and this picture was taken in June at her 100th birthday. So we were there celebrating, yeah. And uh, so yeah, so we, we moved here to Tracy, and we were involved in the life of the church here for a number of years. And um, we then moved away in 2011 to go back to Southern California, and um, I enrolled in, and completed a seminary degree, which eventually allowed me to move back up here to Northern California. And so we currently live in a, in a smaller community um, in the Bay Area, right next to Berkeley, just before you get to Richmond. It's called El Cerrito, and that's where I serve as the pastor of Trinity Church. Now, Trinity Church um, began in, in Berkeley, actually, in 1906. So this is like a, a, an old historical church. And to give you some perspective, this church started back when Berkeley was considered a conservative, rural, family-friendly community. <laughs> and I know you're thinking that time does not exist, but they tell me that it did. We have a couple of 90-year-old women at the church that tell me all kinds of stories about growing up in Berkeley, and I just think, that can't be the same Berkeley, but apparently it is. So uh, I have a, a picture that I'll show you that was taken of the church in, this is in 1910, this picture was taken, and that was the building that they, they built in Berkeley there. Uh, but God blessed their, their efforts, and they were fruitful, and they they, they grew and they multiplied, and so um, after a number of years there, they ran out of space, and so they said, you know, we need to buy some land, we need to build a bigger building, and so they, they bought land in neighboring El Cerrito, and in 1962, they moved into their new facility, and God was good and continued to bless them, and they continued to grow, and, uh, and, and things went along well until the 1980s, and the 80s hit, and, and the church kind of plateaued, and then and then you know, really stopped growing altogether and even went into a, a pretty serious decline. So then fast forward to 2014, that's when my wife and I and our family moved to El Cerrito and um, I began to, to pastor the church. When I got there, there was about a dozen people or so left at the church. So there, 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 there wasn't much left, but I, I felt confident that I could turn the church around. I thought, you know what? We've got some potential here. We've got some resources. We've got opportunity, lots of opportunity, lots of people that all need the gospel. And so I, I think there's, there's uh, hope here for us to, to breathe life back into this church again. 
And so um, once I got my wife on board with that, I got her to work and, and the, the few people that we had there that could, and we started doing everything we could to start attracting people to the church again. And we cleaned up the facility. It needed a lot of cleanup. We redecorated. needed a lot of redecorating. Uh, we modernized the worship service. We started a children's program. We updated the website. I was making sure to preach the word. We were holding big outreach events on a regular basis. We were volunteering, serving in the community. Whatever it took, whatever opportunities we had, we were, we were on it. We were leaving no stone unturned, at least we thought. And so we were, we were just pouring ourselves into this. And, uh, you know, we, we continued doing that for about three years that we were there. And we kept going because we kind of kept seeing these positive signs. We go, oh, that looks, that looks good. We should keep going. Oh, that seems to be like we're on the right track. Let's, let's keep going. Let's keep pushing. And so, so we did. And, and, you know, our attendance grew. We, um, we would have maybe 40 adults and children on a good Sunday. Um, our programs were improving. So that was positive. Our, our outreach was incredible. We would, we would draw maybe 100, 200 people to our church just from the surrounding community, people that would walk to our church to be part of an outreach event there. They would, they would come and, and engage and participate. And so we thought, wow, we're really doing something here. Our website traffic was way up. We had visitors coming and checking out the church. So we're just like, it's only a matter of time now. We just have to keep going and keep pushing. But as time went on and we kind of kept reassessing and, and started looking deeper and, and deeper into what was happening in the life of the church, things weren't so promising. And, and we realized that our attenders were really pretty reluctant to invest and commit in the life of the church. They didn't mind showing up every once in a while, but, but that was about it for a lot of them. The few volunteers that we did have, we were way overusing them. So they were, they were just getting um, exhausted the outreach events that we had, all these people would show up. Everyone wants something to do, especially if it's free. And so they all came and they showed up. But none of them translated to attending church on a Sunday. The visitors that checked us out, they didn't return very often. And worst of all, the spiritual health of the church was not improving. We weren't getting healthier. We weren't being that much more impactful in the community and my wife and I were burning out, and, and, and our attractional model, just, it just wasn't working. People just weren't coming. It was so much better, and people were like, meh. And, and so it was like, ah, what do we do? What are we supposed to do here, God? And so I started to wrestle with that. Where are we going? What are we doing next? Did some soul searching. Am I, are we doing this wrong? Is there a problem? Like, what's, what's happening here? And, and that led me to a very familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, so familiar that I had it memorized, but just having it memorized doesn't always help, right? It's like getting into the word and reading it fresh again does something for you. And when I read it this time, it was with a different perspective and it changed me. It changed my, my priority. All this time, I thought that my primary responsibility was to attract people to the church. If I could just make the church look really good, make it desirable, make people wanna come, then, then they will come and then we'll get healthier and things will improve and grow and it'll be great. But I was wrong, and what I realized is that my primary responsibility was actually to make and train disciples, to draw people to Christ and then conform them to his image, which coincidentally is exactly what Jesus says it is when he commands his followers in Matthew chapter 28. So turn with me over to Matthew chapter 28. That's our passage for this morning. 
And we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20. So Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And again, this passage might be very familiar to you. It was to me. And this is um, an account of Jesus speaking to his disciples, telling his followers what it is that they they needed to go and, and do. So Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. My primary responsibility was the same as every believer's primary responsibility. And the primary responsibility of every Christian is to make and train disciples. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And when I, I finally got that, I realized that our greatest problem in turning this church around was not a lack of attendance. It was not a lack of volunteers. It was not a lack of finances. Although we lacked all of those things, our greatest problem was actually a lack of discipleship. Because the only way for a church to be healthy and effective is to be filled with disciples, people who are healthy and effective. And the only way to to fill a church with disciples is through discipleship. So this all kind of hit me, and I'm just like, ah, what have we been doing here? Our church needed to become effective at discipleship in order to have any chance of restoring the health to these people in this church. But part of my problem, my my hang-ups and and issues, was that even the word discipleship, growing up in the church, kind of lost meaning to me. I heard it applied to so many things at so many times that, that basically anything that the church did that could have any spiritual impact whatsoever, it's like, oh, that's for discipleship. Right? And so it was so like broad and nebulous. I was like, well, what am I really supposed to do here? Because we're doing all kinds of programs, but we're not doing discipleship. So where's, where's the disconnect? And so as I really went through this verse, it, it started to, to change me as I redefined my understanding of discipleship based on Matthew 28 here. And so I want to take us through that, that kind of process and look at that. So a disciple, just to be clear, is a follower of Christ who adheres to his teachings. And that's someone we would refer to as a believer or a Christian. And so discipleship then is the act of making disciples, the act of, of, of making believers, Christ followers, Christians, and growing them. And that's exactly what Jesus commands his followers to do right here in verse 19. He says, make disciples. And it is a command. In fact, there is no more forceful way in the Greek language to tell someone that they have to do something other than using a second person imperative verb. And I only tell you that because that's exactly what the form of this verb is. It's a serious command. It's not a suggestion. It's an order. This is what Jesus is saying, if you're my disciple, if you're my follower, if you call yourself a Christian, then this is your priority. This is what you need to do. You need to make and train disciples. 
So if we're going to take that seriously, we've got to figure out how exactly we're going to attack this. How are we going to go about doing this? So how do we make disciples? Well, the passage is going to give us three keys, characteristics, I guess, of, of, of helping us define the discipleship process. This is kind of the, the how we are to make disciples. And the first thing that, that I, I want you to see is that we make disciples through intentional efforts. It's through intentional efforts. It requires an active pursuit on our part, a continual focus and commitment to the task. And we see that in verse 19. Verse 19 says, therefore, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. That word go, although it's not technically a command, like the verb to make disciples, but because it precedes this command, it carries some of the same force as, as the command to make disciples. So there's a sense in which, yeah, this is a requirement. We need to, to go and do this. We have to be proactive. We can't just sit around and wait for it to happen, hope it happens. This isn't something we can do passively. This is something that we have to put an intentional effort into if we're going to realize. And that's what this passage is talking about here. But it's not just putting effort into it when it's convenient, because I think that's something that's easy to do too. It's like, oh yeah, I'm good with discipleship. I think it's great. And I am going to do that as soon as I get my life figured out, as soon as things are lined up, as soon as I work this out or that out, or my family is better, whatever, I'm going to get right on that discipleship thing. But that's not what Jesus is commanding here. This this word go could be translated another way that's helpful. And it could be translated while you are going or as you are going. Implying that discipleship is really expected at all times. It's not something that you just do when you want to. It's something that you do no matter where you're going. No matter what you're doing. No matter what your circumstance is. Discipleship is the priority. You're to go and make disciples regardless of your circumstances. I mean, if you think about it, we do this with other aspects of our life. I mean, when you get married, you make a commitment to honor your spouse, and you don't say, yes, I will honor you as long as it is convenient, as long as you make me happy, as long as things are going my way, then I'll honor you. You know, like your commitment is, hey, I'm going to honor you no matter what. No matter what I'm doing, no matter where we go, no matter how hard life gets, no matter what challenges we face, no matter what's happening around us, I'm going to honor you. And, th- and that's the same call for Christians. We have that same responsibility that no matter what's happening in our life, we have to be pursuing discipleship. We have to be proactive and reaching out and making these intentional efforts and inroads into discipling people. So we have to be intentional. The next thing I want you to see is that we make disciples through communicating our faith. It's through communicating our faith. It requires us to actually share the good news. We have to be able to express the hope that we have in Jesus and how other people can receive new life if they choose to accept it too. Looking back at verse 19, it says, Therefore go... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is important. 
Baptism is an, an outward act that communicates an inward decision. It was a decision that happened that, that led to baptism. That decision was that the person has chosen to place their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, for the, the salvation of their soul, for new life. And so the idea that, that they're now being baptized is based on that decision to say, this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm now going to identify myself fully with Christ. I'm going to say, it's not my life anymore. I just want you to see Christ. Now, in order for someone to get to that point of decision, they had to know that that was a decision that they needed to make, that there was action that should be taken. That means they had to hear and understand the gospel. That leaves it up to us to be able to communicate it to them, to help bring them to a point where they can make a decision, where we're communicating our faith effectively. And then they can reach a point of decision. Then they can take action. Then they will commit to baptism and act and respond. Sometimes I'll, I'll get upset with my daughter. She's our only daughter, so I can't get too upset with her, right? I have to take care of her. But as much as I get upset with her, when I'll come downstairs and see that the kitchen is a disaster because she's into another one of her do-it-yourself projects, I don't know if any of your kids are like on YouTube watching these channels and saying, oh, we, we've got all those ingredients. We could make that, you know, and do we have a blender? Dad, do you have a drill? And I'm like, hmm, what are you making exactly? Like, what's, what's happening here? So they'll get into stuff. And the, and the one thing that they've been into for a while now is making slime. I don't know if you guys have had any experience making slime. It's, it's quite the process. And when they get like glitter and food coloring and like, because like just white plain slime is not enough. Like it's got to be next level. So, so it really destroys the kitchen. And I'll, and I'll come downstairs and I'm like, ah, oh, what have you guys done? What, what is going on here? And I'll, and I'll tell my daughter like, honey, you've got to clean this up. And she's like, oh yeah, I'll clean it up. It's not that she doesn't want to clean it up or she's not willing to. She just didn't think that was a decision that she had to make. She didn't know that they, she needed to take that action at that point until I communicate it effectively. Get in here and clean this up. You need to do this. And then she's like, okay. And she'll come in and, and clean up and take care of it. And there are people that you may know in your life who are willing to make a decision for Christ. They just don't know they have to. They don't know that that's an option out there for them. They don't know that, that there's an action that they need to take because we haven't done a good job of communicating that to them. And so we have to be able to effectively communicate our faith if we're going to make disciples. So we've got to be intentional. We've got to communicate our faith effectively. And then third, we're going to see that, that we make disciples through training in obedience. Training in obedience. It, it requires us to teach people how to live out their faith, not to just tell them they have to, to enable them to actually apply the commands of Christ in their life. I'll read through verse 19 again, but it's really verse 20 I want us to focus on. It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I want to point out that Jesus did not say teaching them to know 
everything that I commanded you. He didn't say teaching them to understand everything that I commanded you. He said teaching them to obey everything that I commanded you. There's a difference between knowing something and understanding something and obeying something, right? We get that. This means discipleship is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not just, doesn't just happen in our head. It's not just knowledge in, knowledge out, right? There's, there's a process at which we actually have to put it to work for it to be obedience. And so it can't just happen in a classroom. This is actually a training process, a lifelong process of training that requires us to be able to immediately apply and practice the things that we learn. We go, oh, I didn't know Jesus commanded that. Okay, I'm going to do that. And you actually do it. Because if you just go, oh, I didn't know Jesus commanded that. Cool. Right? That, that's not what he's asked. He's asked us to obey everything that he's commanded. And it doesn't just mean obedience in the sense that when it's convenient, right? Not just obeying the commands that you like, the ones that you agree with, the ones that your friends agree with, the ones that society is okay with. No, he's pretty clear about everything means everything, obeying everything that I have commanded you, which, by the way, includes this command to make disciples, right? Are you being obedient? Are you making disciples? Are you obeying every command? One of the men of our church is a technician for Lockheed Martin, and he makes satellites. That's what he's, he's building right now. And he was explaining to me that when they do this, all the technicians have to follow a written step-by-step protocol that, that tells them exactly what to do when and how to do it when they're installing these different components. And they have to follow that exactly to the T because just one deviation or omission or you know, moving things around in the wrong order could destroy the component that they're working on. If they wire it up wrong and connect the wrong thing and, and those components could cost a million dollars for one part of just what they're working on. And it could cost the company even millions of more dollars in, in downtime waiting for a new part to be made. And, and so this is, this is a big deal. So these guys take very serious and make sure to obey everything on that protocol card because they want to make sure they do it right. They do it well because that's how they're going to have the best results. And as Christians, we need to be trained and passionate in the same way. We've got to say, what is it that Christ wants for me? And how can I do it just as he asks, right? Like that's not about being perfect, but it's about following a process and saying I'm willing to to look and understand and then apply it as Christ has asked me to do. So is my understanding of discipleship and, and my responsibility, especially as a pastor in discipleship, really kind of sunk in? I realized that I needed to, to stop trying to make church attractive and start making disciples. That was like what changed me. It really gripped my heart. And so I had to get people to a place where they were sharing their faith. I had to get people to a place where they were actually practicing obedience in their life. And I had to get people to a place where they could then go out and do the same for someone else, teach them to do the same. And so as a result, the decision was made to totally reshape the vision of our church all around discipleship. And we radically changed our format. We radically changed the way that we were where we were gathering, how we were gathering, what we were doing when we were gathering on Sundays. 
and really made it very intentional with this, this idea of discipleship at the forefront. And now we're beginning this intentional investment in a discipleship movement among our people to enable them to become disciples who make disciples. That's, that's the goal. That's what we're at work doing. And we've, we've set a pretty serious goal out in front of us to achieve. And, and our, our goal is to build up a team of 50 disciples by the end of, of May 2018. That's what we want to do. We said, this is the vision, guys. We can do it. Let's get to work. We can make it happen. We can disciple people. We can get them discipling more people because we're trying to build up this team. Because what we want to do is replant our church. We want to plant a new church in our community that's healthy, that's effective by September of 2018. So we've kind of started to lay these goals out and like, look, people, we've got to get on board. This has to be a priority. This has to be a commitment. This has to be something we do together if we're going to turn this church around, if we're going to have a life in this community for Christ. And I'm convinced that, that every church, no matter what size... Right? needs to maintain a pattern of discipleship in order to remain healthy and fruitful. If you've got 12 people, if you've got 1,200 people, if you've got 12,000 people, the, the size doesn't really matter because you, if you're not maintaining discipleship, eventually you're going to reach a plateau and you're going to stop growing. And then you're going to start to decline. And then eventually you're going to die. Even if it's a really long time, right? you're still on that trajectory. And I, and I say that because, you know, my church, Trinity Church, was a big, thriving, fruitful, effective church for the first 75 years of its existence. I mean, if you think of a church that was thriving for 75 years, you think, wow, it's a great church. They must have a great legacy. They must be, right, healthy and strong. And, and yet, that's not the case. Our, our church, even in the first 50 years, planted four other churches in our kind of region around the Bay Area there that, that represent some of the largest congregations that are in existence right now. We had a direct role in sending our people to go make disciples, and so they were effective, right? But we're not doing it now where we are. Our church lost that focus on discipleship and stopped growing and stopped impacting the community, and there was a cost and the church is still trying to recover now more than 30 years later. This is a long-term process that we're going through. It took us a long time to get there, and it's going to take even longer to recover. And I want you to realize something, too, that, that you can play a role in this in the life of your church. You need to realize that your personal, individual obedience actually contributes directly to the sustainability, the longevity, the health of your church. Your church isn't healthy and strong because they have buildings. It's not healthy and strong because they have pastors or whatever. It's healthy and strong because it has healthy and strong people that take Christ's commands seriously and do them and obey. And so you have a, you have a role to play in whether or not this church is able to continue to thrive and continue to impact the community, and bring glory to God. But if you're going to do that, here's some things that I want to challenge you, encourage you to do. So the first thing you need to do, and this is all based on our passage here, is, is to go. You need to go. And what I mean by that is, 
I want you to actively look for opportunities to be discipled and to disciple others. This church offers opportunities for that, right? But if you're passive, you're not going to take advantage of them. You've got to get, get out there and get active. I mean, look at discovery classes, 101, 201, 301, 401. Those are great opportunities. Small groups, men's breakfast, women's Bible study, mops. These are all opportunities that are available to you as, as a member of this church to both be discipled and have opportunities to disciple other people. So we've got to take advantage of those. And if you're a parent, good news, you don't have to look any further than your own children to find someone that God wants you to disciple. Isn't it great when you can determine God's will that clearly? <laughs> right? He's like, I know you might be praying about who to disciple, so I've given you a child. Right? Like that's literally like, that is the role of parents, to disciple their children. That's, that's not the responsibility of the church. That's, that's passive. If you're a parent and you're leaving it up to the church, that's passive. That, that's not going to work, right? Like, we've got to be active as parents, discipling our children. But not just to make our children disciples, because that's good, but that's not enough. Because I don't, I don't want my children to be disciples. I want my grandchildren to be disciples, well, the only way my grandchildren are going to become disciples if I disciple my children in a way that they can disciple their children. So if I only get them to the point of, yeah, they're, they're good with God and that's it, then I've failed at being obedient to Christ here and making a disciple who could make a disciple. And so this is, this is, this is serious stuff, especially as parents. I mean, this is something that's, that's heavy on my heart and, and near and dear to me. And if you think it's not that big of a deal and just showing up to church once a week is enough, ask people at this church that, that raised their kids here and had them walk away from the faith as an adult. It is painful and hard. Just like a church can, can spiritually lose its ability to have an impact and, and its spiritual health, a family can do the same thing. And so if we're not active discipling our own children, right, the same thing is going to happen. We don't want that to happen. So, so if you're a parent, there it is, right? You've got it. If you're not a parent, that's okay, right? There's other people in your life, other family members that, that might look up to you or, or, or desire for, for you to mentor them in, in a spiritual way. Maybe there's people in your small group. Maybe there's just other friends that you have that, that, that you could engage and, and find to, to disciple. Because this isn't, this isn't an option, Right, if you're a Christian, this is, this is the command. If you're a follower of Christ, this is what he expects of you. So the next thing I want to challenge you with is here also, it's uh, you need to baptize. And when I say baptize, what I'm talking about here is the process up to it. And in order to do that, we need to take advantage of openings to share our faith through both our lifestyle and our words. We've got to take advantage of opportunities, of openings, because they're there. And I know a lot of people think, like, I never have a chance to share my faith. If I did, I would jump right on it. No problem. I'm, I know the gospel, and I'm ready to give it. I just haven't had an open door. I haven't had an opportunity. You're wrong. Let me tell you why you're wrong. You have an opportunity probably multiple times every week. And let me show you where this opportunity is. It could be at work. It could be at the gym. It could be at your kid's school. It could be in any other social activity or group that you're a part of. 
But what do people come up and ask you on Monday? As soon as they see you, they ask you a question. How was your weekend? Ha. That is a spiritual question. They are asking church-going people about spiritual things in that question. Don't miss that. That is an opportunity. When they say, how was your weekend? You say, you know what? I had an incredible weekend. I, I, I went to church and I was impacted by this. And I heard this and it got me thinking about this. And I'm, I'm starting to change my life because of this. And, and, and they're like, oh, wow. Okay, that's interesting. I, okay. And you might be surprised how interested they actually are in that. And, and you can ask them like, well, do you go to church anywhere? Do you, what's your spiritual background? We've never really talked about that before, huh? I'm curious, where, where are you at with that? And they're, oh, you want to know about that? And they'll start to tell you about their family and their history and how they grew up or whatever. And, and it opens all kinds of doors into spiritual conversations that people actually want to have if you recognize the opportunity and take advantage of it. And so that's what I want to challenge you to do is say, hey, great, here's how my weekend was. You want to, would you be interested in coming and checking out our church sometime? I think it might have an impact on you too. Maybe you, you, you want to come, right? Invite them to church. I mean, that's not weird. That's not awkward. They asked you. Take advantage of it, right? Why not? I mean, they may never ask you how your weekend was again. So, you, you know, but then you start asking leading questions. Well, how was your weekend? It was fine. I really don't want to hear about your weekend, Right? <laughs> That's okay. That's okay, right? Because at least, at least you're being obedient. You're, you're doing what you can. You're, you're taking advantage of those opportunities. So here's another thing that, that I would throw out there for you, right? This one's a little more, um, I don't know if extreme's the word, but a little more intense potentially. And this is, this is what I found really helped me to develop my ability to communicate my faith and to really understand it better and to be challenged in that way is that when a, when a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon knocks on the door, instead of hiding in a back bedroom, go open the door, right, and invite them in. Be like, hey, why don't you sit down at my table? Let's talk. And talk to them about your faith, because they're going to talk to you about theirs, and, and you will very, very quickly find out what you know and what you don't know. And you'll be like, I don't know that. I need to write that down. I don't know that. There's got to be a verse for that. That sounds vaguely familiar, but not right. You know, and, and so you're like... <laughs> You're going through it and, and you're like, oh, okay, right? And then all of a sudden when they leave, you're like so motivated. You're like, I'm gonna get into the word. I'm gonna ask, these, I'm gonna ask my pastor this because that was a good question. I don't know how to answer this. And, and suddenly you're like motivated and you're like looking out the window. Any Mormons out there? Oh. Right? You're like, oh, I had something good for him this time. I really, you know, it's like, but that is an opportunity that, that Christians can take advantage of. And I'm not saying you're going to be converting and baptizing, you know, Mormons in your, in your pool or something out back, but right, praise the Lord if you do, but it's an opportunity for you to work out your faith, to understand, to be challenged. And, and then when you talk to someone who's open and wants to hear what you believe, it's really easy, right? Suddenly it's just this easy conversation where you're explaining it to them. And, and when they ask a question, it's not like, right? They're not antagonizing you. They just want to know and you can communicate it. And you're like, oh yeah, actually I, I looked into this. I studied this. I, I know this now. And so, so you can take advantage of those opportunities to do that. And I lived in Tracy. I know they knock on your doors all the time. Don't tell me that they don't. We became very good friends with them. Okay, so... So you've got to get active. You've got to take advantage of these opportunities. And then the last one is you need to teach. I want to challenge you to practice and explain obedience to Christ 
for the fullness of life that it offers. Practice and explain it, but in in the context of the fullness of life. The, The best way, I think, to teach obedience to other Christians is to model it. Certainly, your kids see everything you do, so... So you should be a good role model, right? But other people around you, family members, friends, whatever, you can set a good example. You can communicate why it is you're living this way, the choices that you're making and why, and they'll be able to see it and understand it and do the same. They can apply it in their life. But I want to make sure that you don't just live a certain way and then tell someone, like, you need to live this way for the sake of of living that way. This isn't about self-righteousness, you know, you, you need to explain to obedience that it's not just for the sake of obedience. We do it because God tells us that it actually makes our life better. Do you believe that? Because if you believed it, you might actually want to do it. You might actually say, I want a better life. I'm going to be obedient, right? It turns out that what God tells us is that obedience allows us to experience peace instead of anxiety, that sounds good. I'd like that. It allows us to experience purpose instead of depression. Right? That's a struggle. That's hard. I'd like to have purpose. I'd like to have direction. It allows us to experience blessing instead of brokenness. Look, we all start broken. We stay broken, but we can have blessings that we can experience and that we don't have to just stay in our brokenness. And we can experience freedom instead of bondage and, and debt and the things that, that hold us back and hold us down. That's why Christ calls us to obedience, not because he's trying to make your life boring and difficult and hard. It's because it really is for our benefit. And when people understand that, when you communicate that, when you explain that, people want it. They're motivated. They're like, I, okay, so you're telling me if I... If I accept this Christ guy and I, and I start to do the things that he's asked us to do, that, that I could actually experience a fuller, richer, healthier, better life, okay, let's do it. Let's try that. It's an opportunity. So I really want to challenge us to be people who take Christ's commands seriously. You know, people who, who are willing to play a role in the life of their church for, 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 its, for its health, for its effectiveness, for its longevity. And be people who, who pursue discipleship opportunities and relationships. Get out there, pursue them. Be someone who's sharing your faith so that other people can be united with Christ and experience the hope that we have. And let's be people who model obedience, not for obedience' sake, but as the best way to live life. Let's pray. God, I know that you're at work in the life of Southwinds, in the lives of the people, and you've blessed this church, and you've blessed this community because of this church. And I pray that your name will continue to be made great and even greater because of the, the efforts and the commitment of these people who make up this church. That your glory will be declared in this region because, God, that's what it's about. 
It's about making you great, not us. And we get to experience the blessing when we do that, God. But I just pray that, that we would be people who would, who would commit to discipleship, God, that we would take that seriously, that we would understand what it means, what it takes, and go after it. Not be afraid, not be worried. Take advantage of those opportunities, God, and recognize what we can do as an individual in the life of our family, in the life of our church, in the life of our community when we're obedient and we pursue your command in discipleship. Give people a heart and a passion for you, God, so that you can be made great. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.